Well, church, open your Bibles, whether they're physical or digital, to Genesis chapter 3. This morning, uh, we will start this message. We're going to read verses 1 to 7, and then we'll work our way uh, through the rest of the verses. And they'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you. But this morning, we're going to pick up in the middle of a literary unit. Uh, We started this unit last week when we were in chapters two, verse four to the end of the chapter. And it concludes in chapter three, uh, verse 24, the end of chapter three. So there's just really one big literary unit from chapter two, verse four to the end of chapter three. And and what you'll often find (coughs) in um, uh, commentaries and scholars as they write it, they look at this almost like a play, and they divide it up into uh, acts or scenes and uh, describe their study in that kind of a paradigm. And so with that in mind, last week uh, we touched on the first two of the seven scenes that are in this narrative. In the first scene, right, God, uh, uh, Moses gives us more detail on how God created humanity. He comes and he forms uh, the man, Adam, out of the ground, Adama, and he breathes into him and he makes him into a living soul. He creates him in his own image. And as we pointed out last week, it's being created in the image of God that gives us inherent dignity as human beings. And this is why racism and sexism and all the other isms that cause humans to treat other humans with contempt are so offensive to God. God placed Adam in a beautiful garden, a paradise located in the region of Eden. Now, we don't know where Eden actually, or the Garden of Eden was, but Moses gives us some some clues. It was in a region that was bounded by four rivers, and what makes it difficult is we don't know where two of these rivers are. But I think, by, at the very least, what you can see is it's probably somewhere in what we know as the Fertile Crescent. But Moses is purpose was not to give us the location of the Garden of Eden. His main point is the nature of that paradise and humanity's role within paradise. And when you you look at these first opening words in chapter two, God places Adam in the garden and he gives him a great privilege and a great warning. By way of warning, right, he's not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he does, he will die. By way of privilege, God gives humanity this divine purpose and unlimited resources. In the garden, humanity has everything it needs to prosper and to be blessed, including the tree of life, which eating from that fruit means that that humanity would stay young and healthy and never die. Adam was given the great privilege of of being a steward and caretaker, a, a guardian of the garden. And you see in the close of scene one, Adam fulfilling this stewardship role by naming the animals. As as scene two opens up though, God says there's something not good in this paradise. Adam is alone. And so God uh, creates the woman out uh, out of the man and he gives away this first bride to, uh, to the man. And there in verse 23, or 24, excuse me, verse 23, when uh, um, Adam sees this woman given to him, he breaks out in the very first 
poem, first love poem. This last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Our first love poem. Guys, go try it tonight. See how that works for you. Doesn't do a whole lot, I don't think. But anyway, that's what it is, okay? <laughs> Moses closes this scene, right, with this great commentary that helps us understand the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman. In verse 24, he tells us, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So we closed out last week by way of application of how important it is for all of us to guard our garden. That Genesis chapters one and two is a fantastic example of how we are in a clash of worldviews and our culture today. And so the question for us is, will we, as followers of Jesus Christ, will we have a worldview that is based upon the scriptures? Will we think Christianly and will we ensure that our homes and our posterity, our children and our family understand and are saturated with what God says about these important subjects such as marriage and home and sex and sexuality and gender and mercy and justice and the meaning of life, the path to true peace and happiness, will we think Christianly and guard against those who would try to inculcate us with a philosophy and a worldview that is contrary to God's word? Well, this brings us to chapter three, scene three, right? Genesis chapter three. Let's begin reading in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And before we dig into this, let's pause for a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning to worship your name, to fellowship with one another, to give you glory, Lord, the glory that you alone are due. Father, we, we thank you that you have placed us in a nation where we have the freedom to worship as we believe you would have us do. We ask that you would continue to maintain these freedoms for us and our nation. Lord, we pray for our brothers and other nations that do not have this. Lord, we, we think of the, the, the church in China, our sister church that is, has been per, so persecuted and the pastor is in jail for many years and elders have been imprisoned and, and it's just a, a horrible situation that these men and women are going through. Thank you for our freedoms, but Lord, we would ask 
that you do a work in the nation of China and other nations that are antagonistic to you. God, would you tear down those authorities and those powers that are contrary to you, that are enemies of you and your kingdom? And would you establish your kingdom in those nations? Would you be with our brothers and sisters who are living in those conditions? God, would you give us peace in our own nation? Father, will you help us in this time of division to remember that we are all created in your image, that everyone, regardless of their political beliefs or how they vote, have inherent dignity and are not worthy of being scorned and held in contempt. God, would you heal our land? Would you give us leaders that love you? Would you give us a land that is filled with peace? And this morning, Father, we ask finally that you open our hearts, you open our eyes. Would you give us your truth this morning? Would your spirit fill me, speak through me, so that the words that are given are your words that these dear people need to hear. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So scene three opens with a new character that the Israelites were justifiably very afraid of, right? Remember, the context here, because of their disobedience, because of their constant murmuring and complaining as the, the adult Israelites were leaving Egypt in the Exodus, they were nothing but a pain to Moses and they scorned God. And finally, God judged the adult generation that left Egypt and said, you will not enter into the promised land. That was the, you were supposed to go in, conquer the land, have this wonderful new place to live, but because of your rebellion, your sin, your murmuring, your complaining, you're not going to enter. Instead, for 40 years, they have to wander throughout the wilderness and the desert until all of that adult generation dies off. The children who come out of, the, out of Egypt and the children who are born during those 40 years and grow up, they will be the ones who enter into the promised land and conquer it and settle it. It's these children who've grown up in these conditions that Moses is writing to. He's preparing them for what is to come. He's helping establish them in the truth of God's word so that they understand who this God, Yahweh, is that they're worshiping, who's so very different than the gods of Egypt or the gods of Canaan and the gods of the surrounding cultures. And these children, there's something else about them who've now grown up. Like many of you, they don't like snakes, right? They remember that one of the first judgments of God, when their parents were murmuring and complaining against God, was God judged them by sending in an invasion of fiery, poisonous serpents who would bite their parents, and they died in an agonizing death. Okay? I mean, we can all kind of understand that here living in Florida. We have our own share of snakes, don't we? I don't think many of us like them. And so this is what's going on. The serpent in verse one though, he's not some scaly viper like lived out in the desert and bit the Israelites. This is a Satan inhabiting this serpent and he immediately goes to work on Adam and Eve. He begins to twist God's word and lie about God. He, point, he paints God as this cosmic killjoy who is holding back uh, those things that are good for Adam and Eve, and he gives them unreasonable commands. Eve is influenced by this twisting of God's word and God's truth. Now, to her credit, she contradicts 
Satan's initial lie. You know, he says, didn't God say you can't eat any of the fruit? And she goes, no, 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 no. We can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, except for the one tree, which we're not to eat or to touch it. And right there, that's important because that's actually not what God commanded. And, and, and Satan, of course, knows this, but Eve has now actually painted God a little more severe than what he deserves. And Satan capitalizes on this. He jumps on this. And scene three ends with Satan lying to Eve and saying, Eve, 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 you're not going to die. The reason God doesn't want you to eat the fruit is he wants to keep you in the dark. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be all-knowing and omniscient. He doesn't want to give you what you really need in order to be your best self. And so scene four, verse six, that this is the, the pivotal moment in this entire unit that begins in chapter two. See, verse six, according to verse six, if you notice it very carefully, Adam is actually with her during this episode. But he doesn't do a thing. He stands there passively letting her listen to the lies of Satan. He doesn't contradict it. He doesn't correct it. He lets her pick the fruit. He lets her eat it. And then he joins her in it. In one moment, paradise is lost. Their innocence before God is forever tarnished. They're now filled with shame and fear over a sense of vulnerability with their nakedness. And so they, out of desperation, get fig leaves to make clothes. I wonder how comfortable that was, right? And then, hey, fellas, let's stop here for just a second. You know, uh, in my upbringing, I heard more than one joke that, you know, if, if Eve just hadn't eaten that fruit, I think for generations, men have passed down to men that little snide remark that essentially is laying all the blame of what happens at the feet of the women. Okay, ladies, let's be honest with you. How many of you have heard that said in one way or another? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. I've been guilty of it. But do you know what the truth of God's word is? The truth of God's word is that all those jokes and snide remarks about Eve are misplaced. The, the blame, the first home was ruined because the man sat passively by and did not lovingly lead and protect his wife and guard his home against the temptations and the untruth of Satan. Adam is not guarding the garden. He's not leading his wife in a loving, nourishing way at all. He's not ensuring that he and his family will obey God's word. He is with her, verse 6 says, throughout this. By not obeying the very first command that God gave him in chapter 2, verse 15, to, to, be, to keep the garden or to guard the garden like the priest in the Old Testament would guard the sanctity of the tabernacle in the wilderness, or they would guard the temple in Jerusalem later and not allow any unclean thing to enter that sacred space. 
The very first command that Adam is given is to not allow that which is unclean to enter the sacred space of his garden and his home. And by not obeying the first command, he then doesn't obey the second command to not obey, to eat of the forbidden fruit. Let's not miss the importance of this temptation, the importance of the stipulation that God has made concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember last week, we were talking about the covenant of works, right? And, and in every covenant, there are stipulations that the initiator of the covenant makes, the authority makes. And in this case, the stipulations bring either blessings or cursings. If, if, you, if you obey it, you're blessed. If you disobey it, here comes the pain. And in the covenant of works, God only gave one stipulation. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you remember last week, I asked the question, why does God give that stipulation? And then I didn't answer it for you. So it's time to answer it. Why does he give that stipulation for that one tree? Church, it was a test of their faith. It was a test of whether or not they would trust him. Would they live dependently upon the grace and the goodness of God, a grace that had been on full display. I mean, think about it for a moment. He has given them everything they need to flourish. He meets with them every day in the garden. He communes with them. He fellowships with them. They have the closest intimacy with God that can be imagined. And then on top of all of that, he's given them a tree of life, which is so much better than Ponce de Leon's Fountain of Youth up in St. Augustine, because it actually works, right? One author, one scholar writes this. He comments in this way. He says, the serpent holds out the independence that enables a man to decide for himself what will help him or hinder him. This is the crux of the temptation and their sin. By eating the fruit, Adam and Eve sought to usurp their creator and become their own gods. Only God has the right to determine what is good and evil. Only God has that divine right. He is the arbiter. He is the one who decides this. And so by eating, they were saying it was actually good to eat the fruit, not evil. By eating in this way, they were rejecting God's divine rights that are his alone. And what they were essentially doing was establishing themselves as an autonomous authority who had the right to determine what was good for themselves, what was bad for themselves, what was sin, what was righteousness, what they needed to actually be fulfilled. That's what their rebellion does. So verses eight and nine, they open up scene five and they contain verses and words that I think are, are among the saddest in the scriptures. Verse eight says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked 
and I hid myself. Instead of the love that they had been filled through their experiences with God, now they are filled with fear and shame. God begins to question them, not because God needs answers. He's omniscient. He knows exactly what has happened. He's being gracious. He's attempting to help Adam and Eve understand the severity of what has happened here. But already, sin is making this difficult. What's the response of Adam and Eve? Do they fall before God and confess their sins and repent? No, they deflect, they blame shift. Adam says, it was the woman, she made me do it. And guys, this is where you do not amen, okay? (laughs) The, The woman says, you know what, it wasn't me, it was the serpent who made me do it. Immediately you're seeing what happens with sin. And so at this point in this scene, to, to really communicate the, the gravity, the importance of what God does and says, God's words are given to us as a poem. And this poem sets the storyline for the entirety of Scripture and gives us a, a basic answer for the human experience. We read in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat it of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. A curse is the removal of God's blessings from the object of that curse. In Genesis chapter one, you actually see God blessing three objects. He blesses the animals, he blesses humanity, and he blesses the Sabbath day. In Genesis chapter three and four, you see three curses. He curses the serpent. He curses the ground. And then as we'll see next week, he curses Cain who murders his brother Abel. Now church, if we were in charge, right? The third object of cursing would have been who? Adam and Eve, that's right. But God is gracious, even in how he deals with us and our sin. God punishes Adam and Eve He judges them, but he does not curse them. He does not remove them from any future of blessings. He does not withdraw from them his grace. In fact, in the next scene, in scene seven, you will see this play out. God will make clothes for them that probably were much less itchy than fig leaves, right? He, He will validate 
that humanity is not gonna die out as Adam names his wife Eve, the mother of everyone. And then God will put a, a cherubim, a mighty cherubim, at the entrance of the garden to protect access so that no human being could ever get back to the tree of life. Can you imagine how horrible it would have been if future generations, I mean, we're gonna, re, you know, there's places here in the next few chapters like Lamech, who's a lot worse than Cain, and, and all these evil men and women who will ultimately bring about the flood. God will destroy all of humanity because the, how gracious is it that God did not give those men and women or the evil people of our day access to a tree that could allow them to live forever, right? So Adam's punishment and Eve's punishment, it's real, but it's not a curse. God doesn't curse them. He'll continue to bless them. The, the woman, Eve's punishment, it doesn't end with her, but it's been passed down to every woman, as many of you women can testify, Amen to the one who's had five or six of them, right? <laughs> pain in childbirth, pain in her relationships with her husband, discontent with her created role as the helpmate to the man. As Bruce Waltke in his writings says, the woman is frustrated within her natural relationships in the home, painful labor in bearing children and insubordination toward her husband. Control has replaced freedom. Coercion has replaced persuasion. Division has replaced multiplication. Adam's punishment is even more severe as it affects every person who will ever live. No longer will he live in this incredible paradise. No longer will he be able to be in God's presence as he's banished from the garden. And the world he's to steward is no longer gonna cooperate. It's so bad that Paul in Romans chapter eight tells us that the very nature and earth that we live on is groaning in pain like a woman who's having a baby, uh, waiting and anticipating the second coming of Christ so that the nature itself can be restored. Adam will live on an earth that endures God's curse. The fulfillment of work and his purpose in life that would, would give joy now becomes labor and toil. Banished from the garden, he's got this life of toil and often frustrating work which will culminate, as verse 19 says, in death. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Our God is a covenantal God. He made a covenant of works with Adam, who as the first man, the father of humanity, represents all of us. When he fell, we fell. When he sinned, we sinned. And I know our temptation, for some of you, even right now, you're probably thinking, wait a second, that's not fair, because if I had been there, I would have maybe chosen differently because I'm obviously that much smarter than the first human who was perfect. Right? Think about that. <laughs> 
But God tells us otherwise. In Romans chapter five, verse 12, he says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. Like Adam and his sin, every single one of us is bound by this covenant of works. If we obey, we live. If we disobey, we die. And every single one of us chooses to disobey. We're just like Adam. We're all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. And just as God banished Adam and Eve from his presence because of their sin, separating them from that life-giving joy, the fellowship that he had with them, so too does our sin separate us from God. We're no different than Adam and Eve. We, like Adam and Eve, we seek to be autonomous, ruling our own lives, determining what is good and bad for ourselves, what is sin and acceptable behavior and what is righteous, what we need to prosper and thrive. And we are the arbiters of everything that's attached to our lives. This is the way we live and how humanity is. Our sin is just as egregious as Adam and Eve's sin. Our sin deserves the same verdict from our holy and righteous God. Now, Adam, God doesn't curse Adam and Eve, but he does curse the serpent. And what's so cool is that in the midst of that curse of the serpent, the seed for our own salvation is planted. Notice verses 14 and 15 again. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know, when I was a teenager, went to a school up in Jacksonville, a very large school, played basketball, and we had a very good basketball team. We'd have hundreds of fans come out and, and we had a great band at the home games. I mean, they could rock it. And of course, this is back in the 70s when music was real music. So we, it was awesome. And, and near the end of the game, you know, when the other team would begin to frantically use their timeouts to try to find some way to maybe pull out a win because it's, they don't have much time left. During that, those final, that final flurry of activity, our band would oftentimes strike up that song from Steam and the, all the, the fans, hundreds of voices would begin to sing, na, 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 na. Hey, 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 goodbye. Yeah, you know it, right? And then when the game was done and we'd all been done shaking hands and everything else, our, the guitarist, and Joel, you would love this. We gotta have you play this one. He would start doing those very distinctive strums of the bass guitar of Queen's song, Another One Bites the Dust. And we'd all sing, another one bites the dust, you know, and all that. And of course, we knew what that meant, right? It means you lost, you're toast, 
You're done. It's over. You're defeated. Church, this is what's happening in the curse that God puts upon Satan. Our first insight of what is going on in our world, our first gospel promise, our first messianic prophecy is right here. Human history is going to be characterized by a war between the seed of the serpent, all of humanity who insists on their autonomy, who believes they should be the ones to determine what is right and good for their lives, who decides to worship themselves and gives in to sin. That group of humanity will be at war against the seed of the woman. That portion of humanity who turns from sin, who confesses their need of a savior, who turns to Christ, who worships God and wants truth. These two groups for all of human history will be at conflict with one another. History is gonna be defined by this struggle between good and evil, between sin and righteousness. But this war will not be won by Satan. He bites the dust, right? That's what happens. Because one day, a perfect seed of the woman will come who Satan will persecute, but he will not conquer him. We look at this first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15, and we now have the illumination of the entirety of Scripture in God's Word, and we understand this important truth that God is giving us here, which we're seeing play out even now, that the paradise lost through Adam is being restored through Jesus. A few moments ago, I quoted from Romans chapter 5 where God tells us that sin entered in the world through one man, Adam, and because of him, everyone dies because we all sin. One act of sin brought condemnation and all the pain and the deprivation and the disease and the death that we see in our world. But the good news of the gospel, the good news that Genesis 3.15 introduces to us for the first time says it doesn't end with Adam. And sin does not have the last word. God does. And so God goes on in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, to say, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Jesus is that perfect promised offspring. He is the prophesied and sought after seed that would ultimately crush the head of Satan when he climbed up on that cross at Calvary and he died for our sins. And when he was buried and he rose again and ascended to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, ruling and reigning until this earth and this creation is fully restored. As the second Adam, he does what the first Adam failed to do. And in so doing, he fulfills the covenant of works. He perfectly obeys God, and he brings salvation to everyone who will trust in him. The choice for all of us this morning is really rather simple. 
right? The choice is, will we rebel against our creator? Will we demand autonomy? Will we worship ourselves and think that we are the end of what is determining what's best for our lives? Will we worship ourselves in sin? Will we choose that path that leads to death and banishment from the presence of God? Or will we confess our sinfulness and trust in the only one and follow that person who lived that perfect life that the covenant of works demands that we live? Who died the death that we deserve because we have not obeyed the covenant of works and who ultimately rises from the dead and causes the great enemy of our souls to ultimately bite the dust. <laughs> That's our choice. Which choice have you made with your life? You know, the, the scriptures start with the vision of a garden and in the book of Revelation, the scriptures end with the vision of a garden. And just prior to that perfect ending where Jesus restores all things and he brings creation back to this state of perfection where sin and death are now banished and we no longer have to worry about them, be afraid of them, think about them. We can live for all of eternity with God. Right before that final garden scene, there's the scene in Revelation chapter 20 of God's final judgment. And it's a, it's a vivid picture where all of humanity is gathered together and all the saints of God watch as he begins to pass judgment upon the seed of the serpent. And in that judgment scene, the very first being who God judges and casts into the lake of fire is Satan himself. Now, I doubt that it will be queen but I've got to believe that heaven has its own version of hey, 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 goodbye. And church, when that day happens, when we hear the throngs of the angelic beings and all humanity who has followed Christ singing that chant as our enemy is cast into the lake of fire, what a glorious day that is going to be. May, Lord Jesus, it come quickly. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we serve a risen, victorious Lord. We know the outcome of this story. This war has already been won. We, we have mop-up battles going on, and there's pain, and there's death, and there's all the things that can be associated with the mop-up activity. But Lord, you've won this deal. Satan bites the dust. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your almighty wisdom. We thank you for your willingness to take on flesh, be born of a woman, to live the life that we are to live and die in our place. As we begin to enter into Thanksgiving and in Advent, Lord Jesus, would you turn our minds and our hearts towards you? May we reflect on the beauty of this. And Lord, for the one who is here or who hears my voice this morning who does not yet know you as their Savior, would you give them a heart that just is absolutely enthralled with you? May you draw them to you as only you can do. 
for the glory of your name and their good. I ask this, Lord Jesus. Amen.